Good morning, everybody. Happy post-Thanksgiving to everybody. Uh, I want to give that greeting to all you folks here and you folks across the street, the video venue, and everybody who's joining us online, wherever you might be. I want to invite everybody to grab their Bible this morning and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and find chapter 1. And this weekend, we begin a brand new series that will be a verse-by-verse journey all the way through the 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to be a pretty incredible study. It's going to take a pretty lengthy uh, period of time. I mean, when I say lengthy, I'm talking about maybe uh, three years or so, okay? But I promise you, don't let that worry you because it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be, it's going to be an incredible study along the way. There'll be some times along the way when we might pause and do something different, but we're going to work our way ultimately all the way through this gospel. And here's the reason why we're doing this. You know, I, I have discovered over the past few years that, you know, there are a lot of people in the world today who don't have real positive feelings or attitudes towards the church in the world today. Now, some of that, honestly, is fair, and some of it's not fair, but that's the reality of the situation. There are a lot of people who don't have real positive attitudes toward the church, but at the same time, a lot of those people have very favorable attitudes toward Jesus. And so, I, I thought it'd probably be well for us to make sure that we understood everything we needed to about who Jesus is. I'm talking about why He came, what He did while He was here, and what He offers to people like you and me, and we find all of that in the Gospel of Matthew. So, we're going to begin this study. It's going to be called, Let's Talk About Jesus. We're going to work our way through this gospel, and my goal is going to be really simple. I'm just going to try to help you have the best understanding of Jesus that you've ever had before in your life. I don't care whether you have been in church your entire life like me, or maybe this is all new to you. My goal is to help you have a better understanding of who Jesus is than you have ever had before. And so, That's why we're going to do this study. Now, as we begin this morning, I'm just going to give you a very, very brief overview of the Gospel of Matthew. I could spend a lot of time on this, but I don't really want to. Uh, But let me just tell you a little bit about the Gospel of Matthew. The word gospel, as we read it, as we encounter it in the context of this book, is the Greek word euangelion, and you can see the meaning for that word up on the screen. It means a good story. It means good news, it means good tidings, and so the euangelion of Matthew, the good story of Jesus' life according to Matthew is what we're going to spend our time talking about. It was written by the disciple, by the apostle Matthew. Uh, You can see who he is if you look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. Now, here's an interesting thing about that. You can open up your Bible to Matthew, and you can read from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 28 or 28 chapters, and you're not going to find one single reference in the entire book that says that Matthew is the author of this gospel, but at the same time, the early church unanimously agreed that Matthew was the author, and the early church unanimously agreed that of all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew was the first one that was written. It's the earliest written gospel. If I were going to tell you the theme of the gospel of Matthew, I'm going to keep it really simple. I'll keep it really simple and tell you that the theme, the overall theme of the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus to us as the promised Messiah. Or in other words, it's to present the reality of Jesus as the Savior, the reality of Jesus as our Redeemer. That is the theme of the gospel of Matthew. And we see that, honestly, right from the very beginning because Matthew's 
gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Or in other words, it begins by giving us the family, the earthly, physical family tree of Jesus. And as we read it, we're going to read it in just a few minutes. As we read it, we have to notice that there are some really prominent names in that genealogy. For example, we read the name of David, who was the greatest king in the history of Israel. But even greater than that, the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, goes all the way back in the Old Testament to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. He was the father of the Hebrew people. Another interesting fact about Matthew's gospel that makes it different from Mark and Luke and John and their accounts of the life of Jesus is Matthew's gospel is filled with quotes from the Old Testament. You know our Bibles are divided up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've told you before, we can understand that as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or to make it even more simple, an old agreement and a new agreement. And the Gospel of Matthew is filled with quotes from that Old Testament, that Old Covenant, that Old Agreement. That's not an accident. It's that way deliberately because they are there in, Gospels Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew as a way of showing us that Jesus is the Messiah because they help us to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies. Just another example of how we know that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, here's my recommendation to you. I'm going to stop right there. If you've got a good study Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't have a good study Bible, put that on your Christmas list. If you've got a good study Bible, I would encourage you to go back, go to the beginning of Matthew, and read the preface to Matthew's gospel. It'll have information in your study Bible that will go in much more detail than that. But I'm so anxious to dive in, I'm going to stop right there and invite you to stand with me this morning as we read uh, this first passage of Scripture in this journey all, all the way through Matthew's gospel. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, here or across the street, let me tell you how thrilled we are to have you as a part of our service. It's always our joy to welcome guests into our service. Standing together to read the scripture might seem like an odd thing to you. Let me just tell you why we do that. We do that primarily because we love God's word. Somebody say amen to that. We love God's word. It's a centerpiece of what we do when we gather to worship. We read and we study and we try to understand God's Word on a deeper level. And there's precedent for this. If you go back in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, for example, there was a great passage of Scripture in there how when Ezra, who was a priest, began to read the Word of God to the people, they stood in reverence and respect as the Word of God was read. When Jesus, during His ministry, went into the synagogue uh, to speak the truth of God's Word, when he read God's Word, he stood in reverence and respect for God's Word as he read it. Now, he sat as he preached and he taught, but he stood when he read the Word of God. And this is just a way for us to show our love and our respect for God's Word. So that's why we do this. All right, here we are. I'm going to begin with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 17, and this is a very unusual passage of Scripture. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of 
Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Iliad, Iliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. There were, thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Okay, there it is. You can be seated this morning, and we ask for God's blessing to be on the reading and the hearing of His Word. All right, I'll be the first to say again that this is an unusual passage of Scripture, but it makes perfect sense. Listen to me close. It makes perfect sense in the context of a book designed to show us that Jesus was the Messiah. I say that because, as I mentioned, this genealogy traces the line of Jesus, the family line of Jesus, all the way back to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. Now, that, friends, if you don't know already, is a really big deal. How many of you, when you were kids in Sunday school, just like me, grew up singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's how we did it at the church. That I, that's how we rolled at the church that I grew up in, <laughs> right there. So this is a big deal because Abraham was the father of God's people, and today, because of our faith in Christ, we're all sons of Abraham. This is a big, big deal, and this is an important part of the genealogy. If you don't know the story of Abraham, he was a man that God called all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Let me just read to you briefly. Don't turn there. Here's the section of Scripture. His name was Abram at the time. God later changed his name to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, note this, friends, the last part of verse 3 in Genesis 12, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, here's the deal. A big part of what God was talking about when He said all peoples on earth will be blessed through you is that ultimately through the line of of Abraham that he began as the father of the Jewish nation, God would one day send the Messiah. God would one day send the Savior, the Redeemer, who would offer salvation to the entire world. And that, again, is why Matthew's gospel that talks to us about Jesus being the Messiah begins 
with a genealogy. Now, two quick things to go along with that before I share with you the meat of what I want to say this morning. First, people in Jesus' day loved the genealogies. That's not so much the truth today, although we probably all know somebody or maybe even have someone in our family who loves genealogies, who loves to do those studies and find out about our family tree. I've got somebody like that in my family. I'm sure you do as well. But they loved genealogies for a different reason. That was how they spent their time. They would sit around in the evening and they would talk and they would tell stories about their families. They would tell stories about their ancestors and they would recount the deeds and the events of their lives. It's a way that they passed time and they got close together. Second thing I want you to know is that people in Jesus' day, and this is another reason why genealogies were so important, is people in Jesus' day had what we would call an oral culture. They had an oral culture. In other words, they didn't keep necessarily written records. They passed on the records of their lives orally. The histories of their lives, they passed it on orally. That made genealogies very important, especially when it came to establishing things like legal rights or financial status or property values or things like that. In ancient days, your life was tied to your genealogy. Because this was so important, especially in Jewish history and culture, it makes perfect sense again for Matthew as he presents Jesus as the Messiah to begin his gospel story, his euangelion, good story about Jesus, with a genealogy. The Jewish people were very concerned with pedigree, with your people. And so when Jesus would begin his earthly ministry or what we sometimes call his vocational ministry, he would need to have, it would help him if he had some level of ancestral authority. He needed to be able to say that he came from the right line of people. Now, I'm going to pause right here, and I'm going to tell you, uh, and you may or may not remember this, but I have preached on this passage of Scripture before. In fact, let me just tell you this. As we, you know, I've been here for a long time. I've preached a lot of sermons here, and I've preached sermons from the Gospel of Matthew before, and so there's going to be times as we go through this study, I'm going to preach passages that I've preached before. I'm going to do my best I have a record of all those messages. I'm going to do my best to give a little bit of a different nuance to each message, although the bottom line is, you know, you can't take a passage and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. It means one thing and one thing only, and so I'll do the best I can. But as I look at this passage today, we're not going to go through it verse by verse. That would be crazy to try to go and for me to explain all the, the history and all the details associated with each name. Some of those names, it would take weeks to do that, like King David, for example, and other names we, we know very, very little about. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you some truths that really stand out to me from this genealogy, the way it's recorded here that are related to our understanding that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one this first truth. The first truth that I see in this genealogy is Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Remember the word Messiah, he's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the hope for all people. I already told you that in ancient days, a man's genealogy was critical because it gave him his status. And so as Matthew was preparing to present Jesus to the world, he shows us his family tree. And there are some, as I mentioned, really important people listed in Jesus' family tree, again, like King David and again, like Abraham. But Jesus' family tree also includes the names of some people you would not expect to see. Listen, not only in Jesus' genealogy, 
But the names of people you wouldn't expect to see in any typical Jewish genealogy. Let me explain what I mean. In the first century, Jewish culture was exclusively patriarchal. What does that mean? It means they were focused on men. It means when it came to your ancestry and your family tree, what mattered most was the men, the fathers, because the genealogy was traced almost exclusively through the male bloodline. This was because in Jewish culture, women had virtually no status. The best thing that you could say about women in the culture of this day was that they were second-class citizens, and not just women, but Gentiles were considered that way as well. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the term Gentiles, but the word Gentile just basically means anybody who is not a Jew. But in spite of that, in spite of that reality that women had no social status, they were second-class citizens as well as Gentiles, in spite of that, Matthew includes in the genealogy of Jesus not just the names of women, but he includes the names of Gentile women in Jesus' family tree. And to make that even worse, some of them that he mentions have pretty colorful pasts. For example, you may have noticed the name Rahab when we read through that passage of Scripture. You may or may not know who she was. Her story is told in the Old Testament book of Joshua. She was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. We'll talk more about her later. There's another name that's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus that's unusual. It's a woman named Tamar. Most people, even people who have been in church their entire lives, don't know the story of Tamar. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 38. I can tell you, I spent my whole life growing up in church, and I sat in Sunday school classes at the foot of this cutting-edge technology at the time known as the flannel graph. And I, I saw the stories of the Bible unfold in front of my eyes on the flannel graph, but nobody ever told me the story of Tamar because it is an ugly story. Tamar was a woman who dressed up one day as a prostitute for the specific purpose of seducing her father-in-law. No wonder they didn't tell that story to children in Sunday school. And then, in Jesus' family tree, we read the name Ruth. Most people are probably familiar with Ruth. I always think of Ruth as God's Cinderella. That's how I think of her in my mind. She's another character from the Old Testament. There's a book named after her, and it contains four chapters, four of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. Her story is a beautiful story. And even though Ruth became a righteous woman, and by that I mean she became a woman who was right with God, the bottom line was she was a Moabite. She was from the land of Moab. And the Jews, God's people, the family of Jesus, they didn't just hate the Moabites, they despised them. And so here's the question, based solely on the listing of Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, here's the question, why? Why were these women included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus? And the answer is really simple. Matthew, as he began to tell the good story of Jesus, wanted to make a specific point, and that specific point was that Jesus is the Messiah for all. Everyone say all. All people. Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the rich and the poor, Jesus is for everyone. There are no second-class citizens when it comes to God. That's what Paul meant later in the New Testament, 
when he wrote a letter to the church in a place called Galatia. It's our New Testament book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, Paul wrote these words. You can see them on the screen. He said, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And so even all of us today through faith in Christ have Abraham in a sense as our father even though we're not Jewish. Now let's just leave those words up on the screen for a moment and let's just try to understand them on a very practical level. Here's what Paul is telling us. When you commit your life to Christ, and friends, that's what Paul is talking about when he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When by faith you commit your life to Christ, you become a part of God's family, God's big family. And when you become a part of God's family, you have a relationship with him that supersedes any other identifying aspect of your life. And Paul even goes on to illustrate that. He says it supersedes racial distinction. That's why I said there's neither Jew nor Greek. It supersedes any social distinction. That's why I said there's not slaves nor free men. And it supersedes all sexual distinction. That's why I said there's not male and female. The bottom line is Jesus came to be the Messiah for everyone, for all people. God's promise began with the Jewish people, but ultimately he extended that promise to everyone. And Matthew's good story about Jesus tells us that Jesus came into the world to set that in motion to make it possible for all of us to be a part of God's family. That means on the most practical level that there is no room for any kind of discrimination in the church and our goal as the church should be to build a church that defies demographic description. We don't want a church where people say, you know, that's a church full of rich people. If you don't have money, you don't belong there. Or that's a church for white people. Or that's a church for black people. Or whatever color person you want to mention. Or that's just a church for families. If you're not married and have children, you don't have a place there. You don't fit in. We need to be a church for everyone. Somebody say amen to that. Everyone. Everyone. Because Jesus came for everyone. I've met a lot of young pastors in the last six years in my role on the board of the Solomon Foundation, which is a church extension fund that helps churches acquire property and build buildings. And so I meet a lot of young pastors, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them, and I find that many of them approach ministry with the attitude of targeting the demographic audience that they want to reach, and then they do everything they can to program every part of their ministry around attracting and reaching that one certain demographic or that one certain kind of person. Now, I'll be the first one to to admit that there is an aspect of every church's demographic that is out of our control because we live where we live. We can't control the communities that we live in and who makes up those communities. I'll I'll, I'll tell you, for example, I've said this in every service. I I hope this is not misunderstood, but I've always wanted, I've always wanted in my heart, I've always had the desire to be the pastor of a multiracial church. I I think that would be the coolest thing in the world because that would be a great description here on earth of what heaven's going to be like because heaven's going to be filled with people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And I would love to experience that on some level here in the world, but I've never lived in a community that had very much racial diversity. I can't control that. It's something that I've always wanted. 
but it's not something that I can control to any real degree. But that just reminds me, though, that as the church, we need to make sure that we communicate that we're a church that is open to everyone. Everyone is welcome because Jesus came to be the Messiah for all people. Now, let me just mention one more thing before I move on to the second truth I want to share with you today related to this genealogy of Jesus and in particular, folks, in particular the fact that Matthew, as he tells his good story about Jesus, includes the names of these women. One of the things... And this is one of the reasons why I believe that these women are listed in the genealogy. One of the things Jesus did when he came into the world is he set in motion a cultural revolution with regard to the way women were viewed, the way women were valued, and the way women were treated. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, which is a shame, so I'm going to have to be brief. Jesus was born into a world where women, as I already mentioned, had absolutely no social status. Zero. This is just the reality of the world in that day and that age in that place. Women had no social status. In fact, Jesus was born into a world that was cruel to women. And I mean literally from birth until death, it was a world that was cruel to women. In the Roman Greco world, for example, fathers had the right, the legal right, to allow their newborn daughters to die because they placed such a high value and a high premium on having sons. And oftentimes, when little girls were born into the family, they were just literally, as horrific as this sounds, they were literally discarded on the streets and left to die. Women had no value in the day and age that Jesus lived. But when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he treated women different. He viewed women and treated, different in, he treated women in a way that was, was so different, it was literally countercultural. It was unheard of at the time. A few weeks ago, we were involved in a sermon series called What If, and the last message of the series was, what if I saw everyone the same way Jesus does? And I preached from John chapter 4 and the story of Jesus one day having a conversation with a Samaritan woman by a well. Do you remember that? If you don't remember the message, maybe you remember the story. By the way, just an interesting note, that, that conversation Jesus had with that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is the, long, the longest, the single longest recorded conversation that Jesus had with anybody during his earthly ministry. And if you go back and you look at that conversation, you see that Jesus talked to this woman in a way that I'm sure she had never been talked to before because he sat there and had a deep theological and personal conversation with her. And if you reduced it to his most basic levels, then what Jesus was communicating to that Samaritan woman that day was, I know you, I know your story, I know your pain, and I want you to know that I care about you. He was treating her like no one had ever treated her before. He was giving her. It was one of the many times Jesus gave a woman something she had never received from any other man before, and that was dignity. That was just something that didn't happen in that day and age. Well, things just kind of continued to grow from there. If you know the story of Jesus' life, you know that ultimately women who began to follow him began to travel with him and his disciples, something that was unheard of. Women were the first ones to proclaim the truth that Jesus had risen from the dead, not an accident or a coincidence. 
You continue on in the New Testament and you see that women played a prominent role oftentimes in leadership in many of the first century New Testament churches and slowly but surely culture began to change with regard to women. Now I'm telling you none of that was an accident. Jesus came into the world to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the hope for all of us to save us from our sin. But along the way he did so much more and one of the things that he did was he set the stage for women to have an entirely new status in the culture of the day. And I think that's the reason, another reason why you see the names of these women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Listen, he's the Messiah for everyone. Jesus cares about everyone. Right down next to number two. The second thing that leaps off the page to me when I read this genealogy, this record of Jesus' family tree is that God's mercy is greater than your sin. That's number two. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your story is. God's mercy is greater than your sin. We know that Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham. We know that along the way, there are lots of incredible people and incredible stories associated with their names, uh, most of them good, but we also know that some of the names and some of the stories are pretty bad. Some of the people listed in Jesus' genealogy in his family tree committed sins that you would not expect to be found in the ancestors of the Messiah. I'm talking about the kind of sins that have the power to ruin your life. And yet their stories, their names and their stories are there because they tell a story, a greater story of the mercy of God. Let's talk about Rahab again for just a moment. I mentioned her in the last point. As I said, she was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. Now, you can read Rahab's story, as I mentioned, in the Old Testament book of Joshua. In particular, you can read her story in Joshua chapter 2. When Joshua assumed the mantle of leadership for God's people after Moses died, he had the people of God, the children of God, on the edge of the promised land, ready to enter into the promised land. But before they did so, he sent some spies into the city on an intelligence-gathering mission. And while they were in the city of Jericho, they stayed at the home of Rahab. That might sound a little suspicious, but in ancient days, oftentimes brothels, remember she was a prostitute, brothels would often double as hotels as well. Well, they didn't come into the city of Jericho under the radar, and the king of Jericho found out they were there, and he sent soldiers to Rahab's home to drag them out and expose them. But Rahab stepped up, and in a great act of courage, she hid the spies from the king and his soldiers, and then later she helped them escape. Listen to what she said to them. Let me just give you a couple of verses from Joshua chapter 2. The first one is Joshua chapter 2 and verse 9. She said to the spies, and, you show, and this shows us that she had some level of faith, even though she didn't have much background when it came to the one true God. She said, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. A little later in verse 12, she said to them, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. The spies agreed. And so after they returned home and then later attacked the city of Jericho, they kept their promise to Rahab and they saved her along with her entire family, her father, her mother, her brothers, and her entire family, everyone that belonged to them. 
And Rahab went on from there to a different and a better life. She ended up marrying a man named Salmon, and together with Salmon, she gave birth to a child, a son whose name was Boaz. Boaz was one of Jesus' more prominent ancestors, and Boaz was the man who married a Moabite woman named Ruth. And you see the dots begin to be connected. But that's not the end of Rahab. Even though we first encounter her in the Old Testament, her name comes up again later in the New Testament. This time it's found in the New Testament book of Hebrews, and in particular in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which, if you're familiar with that, is an incredible chapter in the Bible because it gives us a list of what we might call God's hall of fame of faith. Some of the greatest men and women that ever lived who lived by faith are listed, their deeds are are trumpeted in the 11th chapter of, of uh, Hebrews, like men like Abraham and men like, like Moses, and you can go on and on and on, some incredible people. But in the list also included is this woman named Rahab. Interestingly enough, she made the list. Now, why? Well, you could probably answer that question in a variety of different ways, but the bottom line is Rahab's name is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 among God's hall of fame of faith because God's grace is greater than our sin. Somebody say amen to that. God's grace is greater than our sin. At one time in her life, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho living a life that was as far from God as could possibly be, but ultimately she became a follower of God and her offspring gave birth to kings ultimately gave birth to the king of kings who is the savior of the world. Another woman that you find listed in the genealogy of Jesus is a woman named Bathsheba. Now, here's the interesting thing. We have to put an asterisk by that because the name Bathsheba doesn't actually show up. She's identified in Jesus' genealogy as the wife of a man named Uriah. I don't know if you remember her story, but Bathsheba was a woman who had an adulterous, illicit relationship with King David. They had a one-night stand that led to her becoming pregnant. And David, rather than facing up to his sin and asking God for forgiveness and trusting God with all of it, he tried to cover it up by arranging for Bathsheba's husband, a man named Uriah, again, to be murdered And after he was murdered, David took Bathsheba as his wife. She had a son, but the son actually died not long after birth. It was a part of the judgment of God. There's a whole lot more to that story than what I'm able to tell. But because David ultimately was a man, the Bible says, after God's own heart, eventually it took some prodding, but eventually he turned his heart back to God and he repented and he sought God's forgiveness. And because God's mercy is greater than our sin, because God's mercy was greater than David's sin, God forgave him and restored him. Bathsheba went on, and David went on to have another son named Solomon. Ultimately, he became King Solomon. Many People believe him to be the wisest man who ever lived. Now, in his story, he made a lot of big mistakes along the way, but ultimately, he became a part of the ancestry of Jesus, who was the Messiah. Now, what do all these people have in common? I'm talking about Rahab. I'm talking about Bathsheba. I'm talking about David. I'm talking about Solomon. What do all of them have in common? They have in common this one thing. They teach us this truth that God's mercy is greater than our sin. And friends, that's something that we all need to be 
we all need to remember because there are times in all of our lives where we may be tempted to believe that we have made a mistake that is too bad. We have committed a sin that is too, too far gone for God to forgive us, that we have forfeited our future because of the mistakes that we've made in the present or the mistakes we've made in the past. But listen, nothing that you do today changes your opportunity to live a significant life down the road because God's grace and His mercy are greater than your sin greater than my sin. That's always been the case, and that's something that will never change. Look at these words on the screen from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The prophet writes and says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Think about that. What's he saying? He's saying that God has the ability to take every mistake and every sin and every shortcoming of your life and throw it into the depths of the sea because God's grace is greater. His mercy is greater than your sin. Now, that's the best news that you've heard all day, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's true for all of us. Let me give you a third thing real quickly. A third thing that we learn from uh, the genealogy of Jesus is your future, and this is closely associated to what we just talked about. Your future is not tied to your past. Your future is not tied to your past. You know, there's an old expression that we've all heard and probably have used before. We're familiar with it. It goes like this. It says, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You ever heard anybody say that before? Maybe you've said it. And basically, it just means that children end up being like their parents. I'm sure all of us would acknowledge that there's truth to that. I have two children, and they are very different. They couldn't be more different when it comes to their personality or temperament. But at the same time, they are both very much like Sandy, my wife, and me, especially when it comes to their values because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's a true statement, but I want you to listen to me. It's not an absolute truth in every way. What I mean by that is just because your parents or your ancestors or prominent people in your life made mistakes, that doesn't mean, just because they made mistakes and they had problems, that doesn't mean that you're destined to follow in their footsteps. You read the genealogy of Jesus and you see people whose lives were broken, people whose lives were filled with pain, people whose lives were filled with sin and rebellion, and yet Jesus was the Savior of the world. He was the Messiah. Even though, even though Jesus was born under a cloud of suspicion. You remember the story, the Christmas story. Mary uh, was pregnant with Jesus before she and Joseph, her earthly husband, consummated their marriage. I'm sure that there were whispers throughout Jesus' life about who his real father was and that people looked at him uh, under this cloud of suspicion. We know there were whispers like that. You know, we know that followed Jesus through his life. There's a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter, the third verse, where Jesus is referred to by townspeople as Mary's son, not Joseph's son, Mary's son. Now, in the culture of the day, a son, a, a boy would always be referred to as the, as the son of his father, but not Jesus. He was Mary's son. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus went on to be the Savior of the world. Your future is not tied to your past. Whatever your past is, you can rise above it. In God's eyes, listen to me real close, everyone. In God's eyes, you have unlimited potential. Your future does not have to be tied to your past. I don't care what your past is. A few months ago, <clears throat> Johnette who was our communications director here, does such a wonderful job, uh, contacted me and said that somebody had sent an email to our 
just our basic church email address that you find on the website. And it was marked as confidential for me. And so she forwarded it to me, and I read it. I didn't recognize the name of the woman. But some woman, and she, it was clear by the area code that she wasn't local, uh, asked me if I would call her. She left her, left her phone number and asked me if I would call her because there was something private and personal she needed to talk to me about. Well, I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, great, what's this? And so I went home, and when I had some free time later that evening, I called her. And I found out when I did that it was a woman who was an extremely distant relative of mine on my mother's side of the family. And she was one of those women, one of those people who loves genealogies. And she was researching some genealogy questions, and one in particular, and she thought that maybe I might be able to help her. Um, she knew about me uh, from a number of different sources in her research. So we had a nice conversation on the phone. And right before we, began to, we got ready to hang up, just on a whim, I asked her, I said, do you know anything about my father? And I'm talking about my biological father because I never knew him. My parents divorced when I was very small. I was three or four years old when that happened. And I have, like, in my mind maybe four, five, six little snapshot picture memories, and that's about it. And anything else I know comes from my older brother or my older sister, but I don't really have any knowledge or memory. But I've always been curious to know, and especially in recent years, because I've been in particular curious to know about the family medical history from my father's side of the family. You know, when you go to the doctor and they ask you to fill out a form, they always ask you to talk about the family history. And I've never known, and uh, I was curious to know if there was a history of cancer in my father's family because I've had uh, my battles with that in recent years. And she said on the phone when I asked her, do you know anything about my father? She said, no. But then she said, but I can find out. And so I'm sure that set her on a journey. We hung up, and I didn't know if I would ever hear from her again. But a few weeks later, she began to send me emails and give me information that she had discovered about my biological father. His name was Augustus. He went by the name Gus. I would, too, if my name was Augustus. <laughs> His name was Augustus Summers. She even sent me a picture of him. I'd never seen what he looked like before. That's him. Between his two sisters, you can see where I get my hairline. <laughs> now, my father died when he was 59 years old as a result of complications related to alcoholism. And there's no other way that I can say this to you this morning, but he was not a good man. He was an alcoholic, he was mean, and he was abusive. And when my mother divorced him, she was left on her own with three small children with no financial support, no help, and a very questionable future. How thankful am I then today that at some point the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God came to my family and changed our lives forever. I want to tell you something this morning. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your story is. Your future does not have to be tied to your past. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Your future does not have to be tied to your past.